Philippians chapter 1. Love is in the air, eh? Valentine's Day, yesterday. Um, these, these are some of the entries of a competition asking for a rhyme with the most romantic first line, but least romantic second line. I thought that I could love no other until, that is, I met your brother. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. But the roses are wilting, the violets are dead, the sugar bowl's empty, and so is your head. This is not good, is it? It's cruel. Of loving beauty you float with grace, if only you could hide your face. Kind, intelligent, loving, and hot, this describes everything you are not. It's a sort of a challenge, wasn't it? I wonder what people wrote to one another. Here's a love letter lament. Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yours forever. Mari. P.S. And congratulations on winning the lottery. <laughs> Well, Father, as we turn to your word, we're often very aware of how little we've been able to fulfill your word in the past week. Though we have tried, both sometimes on our own, but most we hope with the help of your Holy Spirit, yet we are aware of our failures. But we are grateful that you are a God who is faithful and forgives us our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we can hear the word this morning, not with the reality of failure hanging over us, but with a clean sheet, so we can hear it, Lord, and embrace it as if it was the first word we'd ever heard from you, and by your Holy Spirit's help, begin to put it into practice. For we want to express our love to you, Father, by listening to your word, embracing it, and then by living in the good of it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So let me read what Paul writes to the church at Philippi, which he planted, of course. We read about that last time I was with you. Paul and Timothy. Timothy didn't plant the church, but he's with Paul at the moment, so he includes him. Servants of Christ Jesus. Two, all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What really distinguishes the people of God and makes us stand out from the crowd? Jesus put it like this, By this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. You're on my wavelength. Good. Napoleon Bonaparte is credited as saying, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded empires. But upon what do these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions would die for him. True then, true today. The Philippian church, which Paul had planted, as a demonstration of their love, had heard that he was in prison, so they sent Epaphroditus, one of their own, to Paul with a gift, and with the added instructions of looking after him on their behalf. They couldn't all go and care for Paul, they sent Epaphroditus on their behalf. But while he was with Paul, he became gravely ill. Indeed, he nearly died. And the church heard about it, and of course it grieved them. You can imagine sending one of your number to another group somewhere else to whom you wanted to express such love and support. And while they were there, they became gravely ill and almost died. You would feel very distressed about that. Well, Paul knows about that, so he's sending Epaphroditus back to them as kind of physical evidence that he's got over it. He's fine. And while he's sending him back, he puts his letter in his hands and says, take this to them as well. Clearly, Epaphroditus has talked to him about what's happening in the church, so he knows a little bit about what's going on, even though he's not been with them for a while. But this letter overflows with love and joy. Paul clearly appreciates very deeply their friendship and he truly loves them. Even though people can often be unreliable, fickle, changeable. They can let us down, disappoint us. They can even hurt us. And we're not talking about the world, we're talking about each other, aren't we? We can do that, that's the reality. How many people do you know who once were members of churches who are no longer members of churches because in one way or another those things happen to them through the people of God. It's a great disappointment. Paul is thrilled to know these folk at Philippi and he wants to express his love to them. Are the Christians at Philippi then somehow perfect? No, absolutely not. It's not in our power to change other people. That's something between themselves and God. What we can change is the way we see them. Dr. Robert Seidzer, in his book Mortal Lessons, tells a remarkable story of performing surgery to remove a tumour in which it was necessary to sever a facial nerve, leaving a young woman's mouth permanently twisted in palsy. In his words, her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me and private. Who are they, I ask myself? He and this wry mouth I have made who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. 
Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I, so close, can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. We can't change one another. What we can change is our attitude and the way we handle each other. I once had a conversation with a church pastor about the most effective forms of evangelism, those which worked. His church was made up of people who had split off from another church in the same town some years before, before his time. He said that as he prayed and asked God for the most effective tool and strategy to reach out to that town, to the non-Christians, God said to him, go and apologize to the other church for the attitude that caused the split. And however much he tried, he couldn't get past his strong thought. And he eventually went to the other pastor, spent some time talking with him about the issues and confessing and forgiving one another for the past and committing themselves to one another as brothers in Christ. By this will all men know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Otherwise, whatever we do or say, won't count. So taking a few lessons from Paul's letter here, his introduction, here's a few things, how we can care for one another and express the love we have for one another in practical ways so that the people around know we are Jesus' disciples. Here's the first thing, we can be thankful for them. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. Every time these Christians come into his mind, he stops and thanks God. Isn't that lovely? That's really lovely, isn't it? It doesn't take a moment, and you're not asking to do all the time. Just whenever they come to mind. After all, if we all have the same father, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever our differences may be. Paul had joyous memories of his friends from his visits to them. And whenever he thinks about them, he just gives thanks to God. His prayers are filled with joy because of them. They had expressed their love and generosity towards him with, for example, Lydia's hospitality when he was there at the beginning, the jailer's hospitality when he was in prison, the gifts to Paul that he was given when he was at Thessalonica and also at Corinth, and the gift that they've sent with Epaphroditus to him recently. But these are just ex practical expressions of the fact that they share something together. We often use the word fellowship in very lightweight ways. People often say, have a cup of coffee afterwards and share some fellowship. What we mean is have a chat with one another and catch up with one another. But fellowship is a much richer, much deeper term than that. It comes from the root of partnership. And that means participation in something, with something, with someone. We are together because we share something. And in this particular letter, Paul says they share the gospel, they share the Holy Spirit. We share lots of things. We share the same Father. We have fellowship because we are one in Christ. 
We have fellowship because we are children of the same Father. We share fellowship because we are partners in the Gospel. Whatever our differences may be, we share this. We are partners together. And these expressions of love and generosity that they've given are outworkings of that. In clubs, you come because the club benefits you. You come and do your thing and go. You don't share fellowship with the club. We're not a club. Fellowship is something that is. The moment you become a Christian, you are part of it, whether you like it or not. You don't have to come into it. You are part of it. And we have to find ways of expressing that. The only thing, said Augustine, that really unites people is a common desire for the same ends. We often focus on the things that divide us. It is better to focus on what unites us. And the church in this country, I'm not saying it's necessarily altogether a bad thing because it's promoted the gospel, but our traditional way in the past has been the moment we find we disagree on something, we split and form two fellowships. And then they split again because they find they don't agree, and again, and again, and again. Finding ways to divide. By this will all men know you are my disciples, if you love one another, have common ground. I once asked an older and wiser Christian man how he chose which church to be a member of, bearing in mind the word says you have to submit to the leaders. I said, how do you choose then a church that you can submit to? And his reply was illuminating. He said something along these lines. He said, if when I talk to the leaders, I find we agree on almost all the details of church life that I like, but I find that they are not leading the church to follow Jesus. I can't be a member there. But if I find, he said, that I disagree with them on almost every issue of church life, but... I see that they are leading the church after Jesus. I could be a member there and submit to such godly leadership. The thing that unites is our love of Jesus. Not our love of songs or chairs or protocols, but Jesus. What difference might it make among Christians if we were truly thankful for one another, whatever our differences might be? Here's a second thought. We should be patient with each other. Paul wrote, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As the t-shirt says, God has not finished with me yet. That's an important point. And he's not finished with the other either. So this good work that he speaks about is God's beginning work of redemption, grace, that brings about the church in the first place. It is God who makes us new creations. In this particular letter, Paul makes no mention of his role in that. And this emphasizes not only God's initiative in salvation, he started it, but also his faithfulness that he will see it through to the end. And he can say to them, despite the sufferings that they are facing and that they will face, and the difficulties that they will go through, and you and I from our newspapers and television screens know that many Christians across the world are facing precisely the same sufferings and difficulties. Paul is absolutely certain that they will be preserved to the end. God is with them. Because it takes time for fruit to ripen. James encourages us to have the mentality of John, 
he doesn't mention John by name, but he just says as a farmer, has this long-term view. You plant now for a harvest that is yet to come. There's a time lag, which we often forgot. So we need to be patient with ourselves and with one another because fruit doesn't ripen overnight. It takes time for God to make us holy and to bring us to perfection. I was at a church service where I knew the pastor. After the service, he asked me what I thought of the worship leader. To be honest, I hadn't thought much of him. But I tried to express that without undue criticism. And the pastor said, I thought as much. If you had seen that man one year ago, you would never have believed he would be standing up the front leading God's people in adoring praise. His life was a complete mess. It's simply amazing what God has done to that young man in the last 12 months. And I was rightly rebuked. God takes time. Be patient with yourself and be patient with other people. As soon as we believe, God declares us to be righteous. But there's a process by which we become more holy. We are gradually being made into the likeness of God's Son. So we can take hope in times of discouragement and disappointment that God is constantly at work. Which is how I, why I pray like I prayed before we began this part of the service. Because we can come to Sundays and hear in the Word of God with a kind of sense of failure over us. I tried last week, it didn't work. I tried the week before, it didn't work. What's going to make it different this week? And we start listening to the Word of God assuming we're going to get it wrong. Well, we probably didn't get it right last week or the week before in totality. And if you did, praise the Lord. Good for you. But for many, that's not the case. But we don't have to come here and listen to the word of God with that sense of failure hanging over us. God is at work, gradually making us more like Jesus. We can put the past behind us. That's what forgiveness is all about. And we start with a fresh sheet. The parable of the sower has a time element the seed is sown, but it takes time for the seed to grow. Only when Jesus Christ comes again in glory will the work God has begun in us be complete. John puts it like this. We know that when he appears, that's Jesus, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Then Paul goes on to say, we can love them. We can love them. I'm so glad 1 Corinthians 13 was read earlier on. We did not collude in this. It's in my notes here because it's the passage that really sums it up. Paul writes, I have you in my heart. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's got a big heart, this man, hasn't he? And he can express himself very well. So when Jesus was challenged by a teacher of the law as to which was the greatest commandment or most important commandment, he said this, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And it comes as a surprise to some of people who think that the God of the Old Testament is some legalistic deity to realise that both those quotations that Jesus gave are from the Old Testament. God was a God of love then as he is today. 
So when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is absolutely crucial, it's true. Without it, everything we say or do doesn't bear long-lasting value. It would be hard to come up with a very good definition of love, but not too difficult to come up with the perfect example of love. And it's natural to think that someone sat for Paul's Corinthian portrait. That someone, of course, is Jesus Christ. And Paul describes what love does, because it's not static. He doesn't define it, he shows us how it works. And we, his body, should be like his character. So when you read 1 Corinthians 13 and feel amazed by it, then through the Spirit of God you can be like that. Not on your own you can't. You'll be a total failure, if I may say so humbly. But with the Spirit of God, we can be like him. So it's not only the greatest command that we love him, but it bears the clearest testimony to Christ. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The model for this, of course, is Jesus himself. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. John puts it the other way round. He says, if anyone says, I love God yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And the kind of love we're talking about is not the kind of love that is sexual love or general affection. The Christians took one of the Greek words that wasn't in common usage and made it their own. It is the love of the undeserving. It is the love that is to do with me, not you. When God says, I love you, it's nothing to do with us. It's to do with him. He is love and loves us not because we are deserving, but because he is love. The greatest classical expression is in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we can love people, not because they're lovable, but because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, and therefore we love. Finally, we can pray for them. Paul says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And then in verse 9, he tells them what his prayer is, and this is my prayer, that they may know what is best. Never let the best be pushed out by the good. Good isn't good enough for Paul. It's the best he's looking for. He prays that they will know the best, not just the good. So that love must be intelligent. We must seek God, ask for his Spirit's help in interpreting God's word, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And before he addresses the disunity and fault-finding present in the church, as we will discover in future Sundays, he chooses to pray for them. Here's a thought. Let me quote someone else. Christians, it seems, are slow to learn this valuable lesson. The most effective way to influence another is to pray for them. And if a word or rebuke or correction has to be spoken, let it be prayed over first and then spoken in love. So if you have a disagreement with someone, a difficulty with someone, an awkwardness with someone, let it spur you on to pray for them. It's amazing. If you have a difficult meeting with someone, something you've got to face with someone, a difficult neighbour, pray for them. 
And God can go ahead, enabling you to exhibit love. And he prays that they may know what is best, that they can put that knowledge into practice and be pure and blameless, bearing the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness, of course, is the life Jesus gives us. And the proof of it is, of course, the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul talks in Galatians 5. One day, we're all going to stand before God and give an account for ourselves before him. Were we always found trusting in that God-given righteousness or were we making our own up as we went along? Are we filled with the fruits of righteousness by reason of our faith in the redeeming work of the Lord? And if the answers are yes and yes, then it will be to the praise and glory of God for his marvellous love to us. So when you pray for one another, pray that they will know what is best. And knowing what is best will be able to put that into practice so they may bear the fruits of righteousness. So, I rarely do anything practical, do I? Much to my shame. But in this little bowl I have some pieces of paper and a few pencils if you need one. What I'd like you to do this morning is very simple. I want, I'll just pass these around. Take a piece of paper, pencil if you need it, and just write your name on it. It shouldn't be difficult, okay? Just your name. Nobody else's name, just your name. First name, both names, whatever you like. What people know you by, okay? Then what I'm going to do when everyone's done that is collect them all up, fold it in half. I'll have the pencils back too sometime as well, please. Um, but the people to pay, we'll put them back in here. And then for a third time, it's going to go around. And I want you to take one out. Hopefully not your own, but someone else's. And what I want you to do this week is pray for them. Just this week, stick it somewhere where you'll constantly be feeling it. In your wallet, if you're constantly getting your wallet out, or your purse, or a pocket, or somewhere where it's to hand, so that whenever you see it or feel it in your pocket, or you come across it, you may give thanks to God for that person. If you want to, you can phone them up and say, by the way, I took your name and I'm praying for you. You might like to know that. Just know I'm praying for you this week. If there's anything you want me to pray about, just let me know. If you want to do that, fine. If you don't want to do that, you don't have to. Pray anonymously. But whenever you see, hear them, see them, see that little bit of paper, remember them in any way, pray for them. Pray for them. It may be that you know the person. It may be that you don't. It doesn't matter. Are you okay? Are you all right with that? Okay. I don't mind doing anything like this. I think it will be Write it big if you want to, so they can just put it on a mirror and, you know, have your name there before them. Just your name, nothing else, just your name. You face, the chances are they face too. If you're worried about making ends meet this week, 
it could well be that's an issue for them. The Spirit and the Son both intercede for us before the Father all the time. So don't be afraid to ask God, is there something special that I should be praying for them? Some particular issue? Or you can use the passage that I've just read, or you can simply say, Lord, grace and peace to them today, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let there be grace and peace to them today. There's lots of little prayers you can find in Paul's letters, not difficult to find. If some part of your readings on a day-by-day basis bless you, then pray it for someone else as well. This is a bit this is a bit of paper you keep now, alright? You don't give this back anymore, you keep this bit of paper. And as I say, if you felt you wanted to tell the person you're praying for them, that can be enormously encouraging. I remember on a Sunday morning having to go to preach, and it was not an easy morning. The church had been in some difficulties, disarray, we were dealing with some hard issues. Hard words had been said, and I was not looking forward to bringing the word to the church because there was a lot of emotion and feeling going around. And to be honest, I was a bit at a loss as to how to bring the word of God. When out of the blue came this phone call on a Sunday morning, and I picked up the phone, and this far-off distant voice from about 175 miles away, but she spoke very quickly, she's a lady of about 90, I think she was, Charles, Charles, is that you? And I said, yes, it is me. Charles, I just want to know, tell you that I'm praying for you. Did you get that? And I said, sure. And she put the phone down. That was all it was. I had not heard from her for years. But somehow as she was praying that morning, God said, tell him, tell him. He needs to hear that people are praying. I tell you what, it was enormously encouraging. Enormously encouraging to know that someone was praying for me at that particular moment. Thank you, Lord. So sometimes... That sort of thing in and of itself is hugely encouraging. But don't feel you have to. Don't feel you have to. And you might like to sidle up to that person next Sunday and say, how was the week then? And they may well come to you with a big smile and say, well, actually it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Why shouldn't that be the answer? If we are praying for them, thanking God for them, doesn't that change the atmosphere around them? As we're trying to express love to them, as we... We are pledging ourselves to be patient. Lord, let me be patient. Some things that person does drives me up the wall. But actually, I don't know what they're facing. And if I did, then perhaps I'd see what you're doing in their life. The thing that you're not dealing with at the moment, oh, it tears me apart. But I can't see the thing you are dealing with. That's often true, particularly in children. Children have a wonderful way of unravelling adults, don't they? But God is still at work in them. Does that encourage you? Good. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us. That you are glad we are your children. That you are patient with us. And that even, how extraordinary is this, your spirit and your son are praying to you on our behalf, even at this moment. How good is that, Lord? So as we go into the week and perhaps take this on board, and who knows, may spread it to other people if we've got that kind of generosity of heart. Help us to pray for each other with great thankfulness that this week might be slightly better for those for whom we pray.
And thank you also, Lord, for those who are committing to pray for us. We commit ourselves into your loving care and look forward to this week. In Jesus' name.